Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. My name is Patrice Lee, and I'm a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. I'm your host for today's Working for Women podcast. We're talking about education, and I am here with Hadley Heath-Manning. She's IWF's senior policy analyst and the author of our latest policy focus on the college debt crisis and the potential for solutions to this problem. You know, lots of families are out there, and, and moms especially, trying to think through how to pay for college for their kids. So hopefully we'll have a great discussion with Hadley about some of the solutions that are out there from a national perspective as well as from an individual family perspective. So Hadley, thank you for joining me. Of course. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, let's get started. Um, why don't you give our listeners an overview of the college debt situation here in the United States? Um, and, you know, what are the, some of the policy focus, policy solutions um, that can address these problems? Right. Well, this is a really big problem. It's a big problem because it's a personal problem for millions of families. In fact, about 40 million Americans currently carry some kind of student loan debt. Um, but it's also a big problem just in terms of the sheer numbers. We're looking at a total student loan debt in the United States of more than $1.3 trillion. So this has a lot of downstream effects on our economy. It's holding a lot of uh, young Americans, especially in young families, back from fully participating in our economy. And that's bad news. So we've got to find a, a way to address this problem. And I think it's actually several problems rolled into one. You know, one problem is that the cost of college has just been increasing dramatically over the years. And that today, uh, to attend school, whether it's a public college or a private college, it's much more expensive than when our parents went off to college. So in just a generation, we've seen some of these costs skyrocket. Uh, another problem, of course, is that Many people are using debt to finance their student loans, um, and a lot of people aren't even uh, completing the degrees that they set out to finish. So if you take out a loan, imagine you go off to college and you pay part of your tuition, uh, then maybe you don't finish the degree, you still have the loan, and yet you don't have the qualifications to make the earnings that would make it easier for you to pay those those loans back. And then finally, you know, if you do look at our economy, we have very low labor force participation rates, uh, historically speaking, and a lot of young Americans are struggling to find work. So uh, we've got economic problems, debt problems, and college cost problems that are all uh, sort of rolled into one, creating this uh, perfect storm for a debt crisis when it comes to student loans. Um, so I believe to address those problems, we really need a uh, multifaceted solution and, and several different solutions maybe. Yeah, you know, that's something that really concerns me as, as a young black woman who, and I've been very open about my $80,000 of student loan debt. You know, I, I see a lot of my peers who face the same challenges. And, you know, nationally, um, you know, African-American students carry 68% more debt than, um, than their white counterparts. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, you're talking about 42% of African-American families who take on student debt. You know, that's double um, the average. So, you know, the, the question is, how do we ensure that students of all races and all colors are not straddled with debt? But especially when you look at communities that tend to um, have lower wealth um, generationally, um, and are struggling with other obstacles, you know, poverty, high unemployment. I'm, I'm glad you talked about that, Hadley. Youth unemployment is um, is like 12% nationally when you count those who are underemployed as well. But for a young person of color, you're looking at 18%, 15% if you're Hispanic. So, 
you know, when you layer on high student loan debt and you get out of college and you can't even find a job in this economy, you can see how the communities of color are especially hit hard by, by, this, by this crisis. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to some of these, um, some of the proposed solutions that you laid out um, in your policy um, policy briefing. I think it was, it was you, you hit on some really great things, and I'd love to talk more about those solutions. You know, at the core of them is competition, um, not government driving this, but competition. So do you want to talk about how, you know, we can um, reform student lending in a way that allows for more competition or, or just reform higher education that allows in a way that allows more competition? Right. And, um, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned some of the uh, inequities in our system and some of the ways that different students are affected differently. Because uh, in, in a different podcast with Charlotte Hayes, I discussed the, the crisis more specifically. Um, and we really focus on the problems. We focus on some of the government centric uh, proposals to solve the problem. One of those things is uh, some of these forgiveness programs that are already on the books. They actually, uh, you know, unintentionally favor people who already have high incomes. So some of the, the current uh, forgiveness programs ultimately work to forgive uh, the, the highest balances of debt, which can lie with students who are pursuing medical degrees or law degrees. And so these students take advantage of forgiveness programs, and then they end up going on to, to make very high salaries. So we, if we're going to reform forgiveness programs, we've really got to focus on helping those who, who are most in need of help instead of those who are in least in need of help. Um, but you were asking about, you know, how, how would we go about solving this problem? And I think as, as market-minded people, um, you're right, competition is the key. And, and what some listeners may know or, or may not know is that in 2010, the same legislation that uh, created the Affordable Care Act in, in the world of health care actually um, essentially took the student loans industry and moved it into the government. So this became like a, another um, program that the Department of Education manages. And so Uncle Sam is now the sole direct lender of all student loans in the country. Although uh, people with student loans, and, and we have student loans in our household too, Patrice, um, if, if you have a, a student loan, then you know that you might have a, a nonprofit organization or a third party who manages your student loan, but ultimately it's owed to the government and taxpayers are on the hook for your loan. So if you default, that's, at, that's to uh, the detriment of our U.S. Treasury and, and to taxpayers in general. So if we wanted to change something significant and structural about the student loans industry, my suggestion would be uh, to move this industry back into the private sector the private sector, as we know, is uh, much more efficient at allocating resources, and that's just a, an economist's way of saying uh, they will find the best way to use every additional dollar without so much waste, without having to treat every student as one size fits all. They can uh, analyze which loans are higher risk, which loans are lower risk, and that is to say which loans are better investments for, for various students at different colleges and the different programs that they might major in. Um, so, you know, these prices that uh, could be negotiated by market forces, by supply and demand, uh, and in, in the world of lending, interest rates are the prices. Those prices are very important signals for students. You know, if they're facing a very high interest rate, that might signal to them that what they're about to do with the money is very risky. And we don't have that today because, of course, with the government being the sole lender, there's only one interest rate for every undergraduate student, and then there's a different one for graduate students. But the bottom line is, if we want more competition, we need to allow private lenders um, to be making these loans. And we don't need to go back um, you know, to the way things were right before 
uh, 2010, because in that case, we did have private lenders making loans, but they were all backed by the government. The government was basically ensuring uh, that the lenders could not lose money on these loans. And so we, we heard about that with the housing crisis too, right? So we need to get the government completely out of the student loans industry. And that would, um, you know, that would certainly tighten the amount of money that lenders are willing to um, pour out in debt into the hands of students and their families, uh, which would in turn have an effect um, putting downward pressure on the prices that colleges can charge students and families when it comes to tuition, room and board, and, and some of the other student fees that, that they're charging today. So ultimately, the point of returning student lending to the private sector would be to get government out of the equation. Um, and hold colleges accountable for the value they provide. And I know another way to do this, um, to hold colleges accountable for the value they provide, is uh, called an income-sharing agreement. And some of our listeners might be familiar with that kind of arrangement, but maybe you can explain, Patrice, in a little more detail what an ISA or an income-sharing agreement is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Um, when you buy a car uh, and it turns out to be a lemon, you know, you it's you feel like a sucker, number one. But there's usually there's usually some sort of recourse for you to get your money back or to to get some sort of compensation compensation um, through legal channels. When you go to college and you get a useless degree, um, <laughs> there's you still feel like a sucker, but you don't. Um, but you're stuck with the debt, and there's no way for you really to 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 recoup the loss um, for a degree that you're not able to to get a job out of. And so, income sharing agreements are actually an interesting way of allowing you to make an arrangement with you know an employer, a nonprofit organization, or an organ or you know a company in general, and you're in essence kind of getting money up front, earnings that you plan to to incur in the future, but you're getting that up front. Um, and it's paid to you by an employer, paid to you by an organization, and, and it represents kind of your share of future earnings. And you get it as cash. You can use that to pay off your, your student loan, excuse me, to pay your tuition, um, to take online courses, whatever the case is. Um, but what's great is there's no interest. So it's not, it's cheaper than a federal loan where you're incurring interest while you're in school, or even if, if you're not incurring while you're in school, it's after school. But it's a great market solution that allows um, you, the person who has skills and the potential to produce a lot of value for a company, um, to give that, to, to be paid uh, up front, and then you work for the company and you kind of pay that, that money off over time. So, it's, you know, the market is providing lots of different and innovative ways of helping students prepare for their future and get the skills they need without going into debt. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up, just in general, what's driving the cost of college so high. I mean, the, the Federal Reserve of New York found that for every dollar of federal aid, um, colleges and universities, they raise their tuition by 55 to 65 cents. I mean, if that's not insane, uh, it, it, it's unbelievable. But so that's exactly why we need more competition uh, in the marketplace. And, and when we talk about income sharing agreements, we're starting to hit on some of those ways of doing it. But there are other really great reforms um, that we can look at when it comes to lending, when it comes to, you know, what constitutes higher education in this country. Um, and, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about that, Tab, we'd love to hear more about, you know, how do we disrupt the system? We're millennials, and we like to disrupt things. So how do we disrupt higher education in a way that gives students even more choice? 
Right. Well, um, there's there's so much there. I mean, we, we sort of look at, uh, we, we can look at the whole education system. And part of it, too, I think is cultural that we have become a society that sort of uh, worships the college degree and the college experience, you know, that when you turn 18, a lot of people expect that they will go off to college and that they will have this experience, especially if they come from a family where that's that's typical and that's sort of what's expected of them. But I think it's really important that we challenge the status quo when it comes to these college degrees and when it comes to this college experience. You know, what really is the point? I think that's what we need to be asking ourselves. What's the point of going to college? Is it to prepare you for uh, a workforce? Is it um, to help you, you know, find a passion for learning in a specific discipline? Is it some of both? You know, and so when, when students and their families have in mind the real goal uh, for these things, then that can help sort of guide some of our reforms. And so um, one of the things I want to talk with you about, Patrice, is accreditation reforms. Um, but there's, a, a, you know, within that topic, there's uh, a couple other topics, such as the expansion of online learning opportunities and also um, the expansion of, of some kind of um, different program that essentially allow students to test out when they have certain skills and capabilities that they come into college with. And so this is, uh, you know, basically going to, again, the, the concept is fostering competition among colleges and universities and among anyone who provides education. If we can create a way to, to really um, give employers the, the same uh, certification or the same uh, signals that these uh, graduates are qualified to do what it is that their employers expect of them to do, um, then that would disrupt the system. So what I'm talking about essentially is competency-based learning. So if you already know how to do something, if you speak a foreign language or if you have a certain skill, then uh, we shouldn't be in the business of requiring students to take all of the, the course load uh, and charge them for those hours for those classes if they're already competent in an area. So I think those are a couple ways we can, we can disrupt the, the education system. But Patrice, why don't you talk a little bit about accreditation and uh, reforms that are possible there, and also um, particularly how families might um, do themselves a favor by taking advantage of 529 accounts and how uh, people in the world of policymaking might expand opportunities to save for college through uh, these 529 accounts. Yeah, so um, uh, so we'll start with um, macro and then end on micro. Uh, so macro level, you know, accreditation reform sounds really scary, but really what it is is how we there's a the, right now colleges and universities are accredited. It's like the government's seal of approval um, that, that an institution um, should be able to educate young people. Unfortunately, there's like a cartel. There's a, a small group of popular kids who get accredited by the government. Um, and these, the and really, it's quasi-government agencies who do the accrediting. Um, but there's some really great proposals out there that say, you know what? You know, we're leaving a lot of the innovative, um, market-driven um, education opportunities out of the loop here. Um, you, Hadley, you touched on um, online learning. You touched on um, testing out competency-based reforms. But there are lots of ways that young people are learning today to build the skills and the knowledge that can they can find that they can use to find jobs in this economy, and accreditation reform will take the power out of a few hands in Washington that decide which colleges and universities get accredited. Uh, and the key for accreditation is that then students can take federal funding to get an education at these institutions. But break up that 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 decision making and and disperse it to the states. 
allow states um, and regions to decide, you know, what are the best institutions um, that allow, that, that teach students the skills that they need. That then says it's not just, you know, the Harvards, the, F- the Ivy League schools, it's not even just the, the community colleges and, the, um, and the, the nonprofit colleges, but then it opens it up to apprenticeships. Um, accreditation could be open to um, some non-traditional learning models that are out there that are new and cutting edge. And now all of a sudden, a student can craft their future because, hey, maybe they're taking an accredited internship program here, maybe an accredited apprenticeship program, maybe they're taking some courses at the local college, maybe they're taking some courses at the community college. But they're able to craft an education that is best for them as an individual and really helps them um, find work in the marketplace. And, and getting back to your point about changing our mindset around what it means to, 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 to after, uh, after um, high school, what it means to become educated, we need to think beyond just a four-year traditional, four-year um, every kid to college model. So then on a, macro, a micro level, what does it look like for families? Well, um, there's some really great um, ways for a family to save. So, you know, we're probably not going to see accreditation reform, although um, I believe the HARO Act was introduced um, last year or maybe introduced, reintroduced again this year in Congress um, to change accreditation. But at the micro level, families, instead of holding your breath for Congress to do something, you can be saving right now. And 529 plans are a great way of doing that. Um, 529 plans are, are simply just a, a, another savings vehicle that allow you to, you know, put some money aside for a young person um, whenever they're ready to go to college. And, and that money can be used for anything, not just tuition. It can be used for books. It can be used for some of the expenses that are incurred um, when, when pursuing, your, um, pursuing higher education of whatever form that looks like. Um, so it's a really great vehicle. A lot of, not a lot of families know about it, um, but the more uh, light that shined on it as a way for, for families to pay for college that doesn't inc- incur debt, you know, it's just another tool in a young person's arsenal to, to, pro- to provide for themselves and to educate themselves without, you know, saddling themselves with debt. Um, and, and, you know, the debt burden, it has a, a, a it, it's having an impact on our generation, Hadley. Millennials are not buying houses at the same rate. They're not starting businesses. They're even getting married, you know, at the same rate because of student debt. So I'm so glad that you laid out a number of these proposals um, to tackle from a a micro perspective and a macro perspective on student loan debt. And we covered a lot today, but oh, please go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it is truly mind-blowing when we step back and we look at how many different ways government subsidizes higher education because you would think that with all these subsidies in place, that that would somehow reduce the cost that we're paying. But in fact, the cycle has been going in the opposite direction. As, as government increases the aid and subsidies that they're sending to colleges and to universities directly and also uh, to students in the form of, of debt forgiveness programs and, and, and debt subsidi- subsidization programs, um, I, I think what we're seeing here is a classic uh, economic uh, problem called subsidy capture where, the you know, unfortunately, the students and their families who pay for education are um, having the subsidies that are intended to help them captured by different parties in, in the higher education system. So if we could avoid that, you know, I would advocate for moving more subsidies um, towards uh things like 529 accounts or individualized education accounts so that if the government has to be involved in, um, 
you know, helping students, especially those uh, at the lower end of the income scale who really need help paying for some of these things, uh, that it would ultimately be their choice about how to spend every dollar. And that's, that's sort of the same conundrum we have with K through 12 education, right? We want the dollars to follow the student and we want the student to be uh, empowered to choose what's most valuable for him or herself in terms of their education. And, and finally, I just, I just want to add um, as we wrap up here that some of these are really big picture reforms. You know, we've talked about accreditation, online education. We've talked about um, changing the student loans industry and moving it back um, to where it would be more competitive in the private sector. Some of these reforms, I think, would most benefit people who are still under the age of 18, who are future students, future lenders, um, I mean, future borrowers. But there's also things that we can do um, to try to help those people who today are struggling with their monthly payments and struggling with the burden of student loans. Because you're right, you mentioned some of the big life uh, you know, experiences that people are missing out on, like homeownership in some cases, um, because of the way that their student loans affect their, their financial picture. And, and I would just mention a few of those really quickly. Um, we could make changes to the tax code to really reward people who are making aggressive payments on their student loans. Today, you can deduct about $2,500 uh, from, from your taxes for student loan interest. We could consider raising that cap or at least doubling it for married uh, taxpayers so that they don't face a marriage penalty when it comes to their student loan interest. And we could also offer employers the opportunity um, to, to repay the debts of people who come to work for them as a workplace benefit, as a part of compensation, um, and to do so tax-free. Because we know some employers are already doing this and already offering uh, benefits like this, um, but it would be nice if the government would encourage it by allowing employers to do that in a tax-free fashion. They can already do that if employers want to you know, pay for part or all of your tuition if you wanted to attend graduate school or something like that. Um, but it's essentially the same thing to, to pay for someone's student loan debt. You're just paying after the fact instead of before the fact um, for their educational expenses for the human capital that they come to use at your workplace. And so, uh, again, I think um, it's, it's very easy uh, for some people to suggest government-centric solutions that sound like one-size-fits-all, if only we could forgive the student loan balance or if we could um, put into place more government forgiveness those sound like easy solutions, but unfortunately, they come with so many uh, unintended consequences. The real solutions, the best solutions, the ones that are going to work are the ones that, like you said, will be creative, will be, um, you know, both coming from individuals and families and from actors in the private sector and in our communities um, to really create, I hope, again, like I said at the outset, a multifaceted solution for really what has become a multifaceted problem. Terrific. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, and this has been a really great discussion. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Hadley? Um, I would just add that if people are, are interested in this topic, you know, they can find the, this policy focus we've been talking about. It's a six-page document. It's available on our website, um, and we have more resources available at the Independent Women's Forum uh, when it comes to higher education. Uh, this was actually a, a second part to a two-part series of policy focuses, uh, the first of which focused on... Um, sort of the problems, and this uh, second one, which focus on the solutions. So if people are interested in reading more, there's certainly those resources uh, available for them on our website. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again, Hadley. Uh, this is our guest, Hadley Heath Manning. We hope you enjoyed this Working for Women podcast today, and you know, thank you guys for tuning in. If you want to learn more about this topic and many of the others that the Independent Women's Forum um, has, listen to more of our podcasts, just visit IWF.org. 
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.